0: Well, good morning, everybody. As we open up this morning, I want you to join me in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, If you're not sure where that is, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, so just go right to the front. Flip over 11 chapters to chapter 12, and that's where we're going to start. And the theme today is going to be the theme of an unlikely choice. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a series called The Story. We're trying to go through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation in six months. So we are flying at top speed at about 30,000 feet. Obviously, we're not going to get into every detail of every story, but we want to get the high points uh, to give you a sense of the narrative of Scripture and how to understand when, so that when you're reading the text of Scripture, you know exactly where you are in the narrative. Uh, And this morning, we talk about this choice, an unlikely choice. How many of you like watch the Golden Globes or the Academy Awards or something like that? Anybody? Got a few of you. You know, nobody raised their hands in the 9 o'clock for that. And I thought, well, okay, well then, welcome to the club. I don't watch that stuff either. But I'm going to tell you why I don't watch it. It's not because I'm anti-art or anything like that. I stopped watching that stuff a long time ago because every movie I love never wins an award, and all the ones that I personally hate, they come away with all the gold. Have you ever felt that way? Like you walk away and you're like, "Really? That one? Like nothing blew up in that one?" And yet it wins an award. I don't. I don't get that. I really don't get that. So for some of you, you're watching the Academy Awards. You're like, "Man, that just shocks me that out of all the great movies or or all the great actors and actors, they would have picked that one." For me, I tend to feel that way. Along about the time of the NFL draft uh, or the Heisman Trophy selection, really, that guy. Uh, especially this year, but I'm still a little raw, so I'm not going to go into that one. Okay, Today we're going to read about a very unlikely choice. And one of the themes that we see unfolding for us in the narrative of Scripture is that God does choose very unlikely people. And the person we're going to look at predominantly today is Abraham. Now, when you hear that name Abraham, you think, wow, this is the guy, as we look back on his life from a a great distance of history, there's a lot of respect for him. Two-thirds of the world's population knows who this man is. Uh, All three of the monotheistic religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, pay him a high amount of respect. And if you don't read his story, you tend to think he was a pretty good guy. But we're going to read his story today and we're going to unveil some things that, that, that reveal to us that this is actually a very unlikely choice now we do that remembering the actual context and the point of the story so this story in of Abra- uh, the story of Abraham is couched within again this larger story the point of which is this in Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and her offspring he shall bruise your head you shall bruise his heel for the last several weeks I have been emphasizing to you that this is the main point of the storyline. It's the seed. The fact that God created all things, He created man and woman equal. He placed our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden to cultivate it, to keep it, and to bring Him glory. Our first parents decided to sin against Him. They rebelled against Him, essentially by putting themselves in the place of God. And so the result of that is creation starts to collapse in on itself. The serpent is punished. Adam and Eve are punished. They're put outside the garden. And yet in the midst of that, in Genesis 3.15, we still see this promise. God is saying, I'm not going to leave the world like this. I'm going to send someone through the womb of the woman. Eventually, somebody from that line is going to come, a Messiah, and they're going to fix all this. So you've got to remember, as we talk about the story of Abraham, that is the main point. It's the main point. And it's a turning point in history by the time we get to Abraham, because after Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, All we really see is sin and carnage and devastation and all of the results of the fall and all of the results of rebellion against God. We see, first of all, Cain murdering Abel. And so we see through that, that sin affects even our closest family relationships, even those closest to us. Those relationships can turn very violent. Uh, sin affects that, causes family dysfunction. Then there's the flood, uh, Genesis 6 to 9. And we see through that societal sin that eventually this just sort of ripples out and it affects the whole of Human civilization to the extent that God has to just kill everybody and start over with Noah and his family and we looked at that last week and so once we get out of the garden all the way up until we get to where we are this morning at chapter 12 all we see is the destructive results of sin and darkness and brokenness in the world and it could be very very depressing Until we get to chapter 12, because today everything is about to change. Because God is about to begin, remember He promised in chapter 3, I'm going to send somebody. In chapter 12, we finally reach that turning point where He's going to initiate in human history the bringing about of that promise. Take a look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So out of all of humanity, God chooses this man from Mesopotamia by the name of Abram. And He makes him these following covenant promises. He says, first of all, a great nation is going to emerge from your lineage. Second of all, your name is going to be great. People are going to know who you are. Number three, the nation that he sires will be a blessing to the world, and they have been and they continue to be. We'll get into that in a little bit. Fourthly, the promise of reciprocity. This is going to be really important when we get into some later stories in the Bible. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. We start seeing that come to fruition as we move through the storyline of the Scriptures. And then finally, you will be a blessing for the whole world. A blessing, that blessing, that Messiah, that seed is now going to come through a nation that's going to emerge from this man. Now that's a lot of stuff. Okay? And we're not going to have time to unpack all of it today. As we continue to move through the story of Scripture, we'll be unpacking it more and more. And what it means, we'll even deal with, with even some of the modern debate surrounding how it is that God is actually fulfilling that promise. Because all Christians don't agree in terms of, of how that's happening. But, but I want you to get a sense of this covenant promise. Because remember, last, if you were here last week, I said there are four covenants in the Bible that are everlasting. They last forever. The first one was with Noah. We talked about that one last week. This is the second one. So this one's still in full effect. It's still going on right now. Right now. And we'll get into the unpacking of all of that and the implications for that. This morning, though, what we need to do is get through the shock of the who. Who it is that God has chosen. Abram. Abram. Now, what little bit we know about Abram by the time we get to this point is he's the oldest of three boys. He's got two son, he, or two brothers, Nahor and, and, and Haran. And his father Terah has relocated them from Ur of the Chaldees, which a uh, number, number of scholars debate whether that's about 40 miles from Haran, where they ended up landing, or whether it's in southern Mesopotamia. And it took them many, many days and perhaps even weeks to get to that location. But be that as it may, they have finally come to Haran which if you saw in the video, uh, was the place where I was standing. That's where they are when Abram gets this message from God. And he says, I'm going to give you all of these things. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. I want you to go from the land that I am giving you. Now, Now, here's the tricky part about that. If God's going to keep His promise, you have to have people and you have to have land. A nation requires people and a place for those people to be. And God has just chosen a 75-year-old man whose wife has borne him no children. And and the first step in making this promise is now he's like, leave the land. So he had land but no people. Now he's got neither. And God says, this is how I'm going to fulfill your promise. This is how I'm going to bring about the promise. Through you. And he doesn't tell Abraham where to go next. Now, can you imagine following God in that way? Initially, uh, this this God, this man sounds like a truly faith-filled man. I mean, can you can you imagine being um, being packed up, packing up your truck, go to you go to you go to run a U-Haul, and you, you back up and you start loading your truck, right? And then your neighbor comes up and they ask you that typical billing ball, here's your sign question. You moving? No. I just throw all my stuff in this truck once a week to make sure it'll fit, right? Um, and so you're, you're there, and, and then well, here comes the next question. Where are you going? And you say, I don't know. Okay. Well, have you sold your house yet? I mean, have you got another house? No, not really. Where are you going? Are you going to leave the country? And you say, I don't know. Are you going to leave the st- I don't know. Are you going north, south, east, west? I don't know. All right, look, you got to know something. You're going to leave your house. You're going to pull out of the cul-de-sac, go down to the stop sign. When you get there, you turn it left or right, and you say, I don't know. This is Abram. And at first glance, it looks like an amazing, amazing demonstration of faith. Because this is what he does. He picks up everything. And he moves. And this becomes the key to Abram's life. It always looks like God's never going to come through for him. Gotta have people, gotta have land. And for the next several centuries, what we're gonna see through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and those who come after them is there are times where there's people but no land. There's at this point there's land but no people, then God takes the land away. At some point God's gotta bring all of this together. But Abram saw none of it. He saw none of it. And this is the key to his life. It looks like God will never come through. And so what looks like genuine faith in the beginning is not too far into the future demonstrated to be rather empty. Kind of a veneer. You know, you, you, so this is the point of you, you never judge somebody by one snapshot in their life. They do something really terrible, really stupid, and you go, okay, well, they just don't belong to God at all. Or, there's this powerful moment of faith in their life, like we just saw with Abraham backing up a truck, and you think, wow, that guy is full of faith. Well, maybe. Let's keep watching. And what you see in Abram's life is not that God chose him because he was righteous. What we will see in Abraham's life is that God chooses him in order to make him righteous. Righteous. This is a great thing about Scripture. It doesn't sanitize anybody's life, even the ones that we respect the most. Take a look at the things that characterized Abram's life very early on. First is disobedience. He gets to the land that we now call Canaan. God tells him to stay there. But there's a famine. And because he's afraid he's going to starve to death, it's kind of interesting, right? This is weird. This is inconsistency. I'm going to pack up everything, not even know where I'm going. And then once I get there, God tells me to stay there. And then all of a sudden my face starts to get shaky because I wonder where the food is. So I relocate with my wife down to Egypt. Disobedience. Stay there. And he doesn't do it. Here's the second thing he does. Cowardice. Notice in the, the verses 11 to 16. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister. Ladies, how do you like that? That it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. He basically becomes one of his concubines. His wife. Now think about that. Ladies, you ever been in a relationship like that? Maybe it's not quite that bad. One of those abusive, codependent kind of situations where your dude gets you in a world of hurt and then he dumps it all on you and puts you in an incredibly difficult situation in order to save his own skin. That's called cowardice. Right? I remember when our people got Osama bin Laden. And I remember seeing, hearing on the news the tape that when they broke down the door... where. What was he doing? Hiding behind one of his wives. And I thought, yep, this is what it's like. Coward. That's who the guy is. That's who he's always been. Reveals his ultimate character right there at the end of his life. But guys, you don't have to put your wife between you and a bullet to be a coward. It can be a difficult emotional situation. It can be a decision to do the right thing. Any number of things can reveal you as a man to be a coward. And we see that here. I'm afraid. And so I'm going to put this on my wife. On my wife. God designed us, gentlemen, if necessary, to die for the women in our lives, not to send them out to endure hardship to save our worthless rear ends. That's not how it's supposed to work. But this is what Abram does. He's a coward. He's disobedient. Finally, there's adultery. That's always fun, right? And in Abram's mind, this is completely okay because his wife said it was. She comes to him, both of them in their old age, and she says, there is a servant girl here in the house. Her name is Hagar. Why don't you sleep with her? And through that, we can have the child that God has promised us. And Abram, pervert that he is, thinks this is a wonderful idea. Right? And it must be alright, because my wife said it was okay. It is amazing. The rationalization we will go through to justify open rebellion against God. Pastor, God knew I needed that money, so he didn't care that I swiped it from my company. Pastor, God knows we love each other, so if we're having sex outside of marriage, that's not a big deal. I mean, we're married in God's eyes after all. No, you're not. Stop being stupid. I know I'm not supposed to be living this way. I know I wasn't supposed to make that choice. I know I wasn't supposed to do this. I know God said that I should do that, but rationalization. It's as old as this story. Abram saying, sure, I'll do that. I'll sleep with another woman. But sin and rebellion against the clear teaching of God's Word is not a strategy for accomplishing God's purpose. It never has been, and it never will be. It never has been, and it never will be. And so here you have this Abram. Father of the nation of Israel, guy, two thirds of the world today, they know his name, they respect him gracious they respect him immensely. Disobeys God, pimps out his wife like some trafficker, and then sleeps with another woman. This is the guy God chooses. This is the guy. So I'm having my Academy Awards experience right now, going, Who picks this guy? Who picks this guy? Now, Sometimes as a pastor, I hear examples like this from people who are living in sin and they want to be in leadership or they want to do this or they want to do that. And when I tell them no, this is typically the answer. But but like, Pastor, look at what Abraham did. And God used him mightily. Look at what David did. David, he didn't just have adultery, commit adultery. He, he committed murder. And God called him a man after his own heart. Surely, Pastor, even though I'm living in unrepentant sin, God could use me. And I will tell you, yeah, God can use you. He absolutely can. But not while you are still in your sin. Because that's not the way it worked with Abram. That's not the way it worked with David. If if that's what you think, you never actually read these stories to see what God does. And once you read these stories, and you read the ringer of through which God put these men to make them right with Him, I'm not sure you want to share their destiny. I just don't think you do. And so, yeah, God can use anybody. I know that because He's he's using me. But He will only do it when you are in right relationship to Him. And so before God uses Abram to do all the things that we're going to talk about, to do those things that are going to unfold for us over the period of the next several weeks, as we look at the rest of this story, He has to change Abram. So what we've seen is an inconsistent faith. We've seen a very thin veneer, an empty faith. But in chapter 17, Abram's empty faith runs headlong into God's covenant promise. Take a look at this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly." Now I want you to see this different posture on the part of Abram. He fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, which just means father, but your name shall be Abraham, which means exactly what the Bible says here. A father of a multitude of nations. So Abram comes out with a new name and a new identity. And the purpose and the destiny to walk in that identity but it didn't happen until he was broken by god we see that here we see submission abraham fell on his face he fell on his face this man who lied and acted in a cowardly way this adulterer this disobedient servant is broken the evangelical church today speaks a lot about soundness and i appreciate that i appreciate sound doctrine We try to guard that around here as best we can. I think it's incredibly important. But I'll tell you this. If I have to choose between someone who is merely sound and someone who is broken, I will choose broken every single time. You know why? Because if you're broken, the soundness just kind of comes. It'll take care of itself. On the other hand, you can be completely sound. You can have all your T's crossed, all your I's dotted, think you got it all figured out, and you can become very proud, uh, very obstinate in your own mind, and you can rebel against God even with your religion. Give us broken people. Because when they're broken, I'm going to tell you, it is broken people who get a new destiny. They get a new destiny. Your name is now Abraham, and I will make it. I will fix your future so you walk in that identity. Even though you are now childless, I'm going to give you so many kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. You're going to look at the stars of the heaven and you'll be able to count those before you can count the number of your descendants. That's the identity. That's the destiny that I'm giving to you. And it comes in the form of a renewed promise. I'm bringing this great nation out of you. And I will be your God and I will be their God. And then comes the sign of the covenant. The sign. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And all the dudes in the crowd just went, uh-oh. And just in case he's not clear in his meaning the first time, he continues, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. Oh, I didn't misread that. Yep, that's exactly what he meant. Oh, gosh, what do I do now? And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Now, all of us know what a sign is. Any of us who are married are probably wearing one right now. Okay? Now, I, could tell you, which means I could take this off and lay it right here, and I'm still very much a married man. But I'm going to take it and put it back on immediately, because Mrs. Rainey would get very upset with me if I lost it. Right? So, so because the sign, even though even though it doesn't make me married, it's important. Isn't it? It's very important for people to know. I'm tied to another woman. I'm unavailable until one of us is dead. Right? That's important. That's important. This is another sign. And it's the sign of a covenant that God struck with Abraham that the Bible says is everlasting, which means it never got fulfilled. Are you nervous yet? Okay? I'm going to try to keep this PG-13, but I'm telling you guys, you have got to understand what this means. This, this, this text is packed with meaning. But it sounds like not so pleasant. I mean, I've, seen some, I've seen some pretty brutal initiatory rites. I've been the subject of some of them. To play high school football, I had to, as a freshman, I had to have a senior shave my head. All the way down to the skin. I've seen people getting beaten with rubber hoses. I've seen all kinds of hazing activity. Um, this one, I don't know that you get any worse than that. For an initiatory rite. And so we've got to look at this and say, what what do we make of this? What do we make of this? But the reason for circumcision is incredibly important. So I need you to hang with me for just a bit, okay? This is, and from this point will forever be, at least in Abraham's time, an initiatory rite and a sign of the covenant, marking every man in the community as belonging to God. That was the purpose of it. Okay, There is not a male living on planet earth who does not take that particular part of their anatomy very seriously. Am I right, fellas? Come on, we're adults here. Am I right? Yeah, we take it seriously. So I want you to think about this. This is what I want you to do. All this started. This is the sign of the covenant. Dude out in the middle of the desert with a flint knife looking at heaven going, You want me to do what to myself? What do we do with this? It's a sign that you have been marked. And you've got to remember where this guy came from. He's an adulterer. He's a liar. He's a coward. This is God's way of emphasizing to a man who's already cheated, already pimped out of his own wife, saying to that man, I'm going to strike a covenant with you, and I'm going to do great things with you, but first you need to understand I created you, and I own you. I own everything about you. Everything you have belongs to me. I want all of you. And this will be the sign of the covenant because if I mark that, I know i got everything else. Ain't that right, fellas? This is the purpose and the meaning of circumcision. You take care of that. If I've got that, I have everything else in your life. Because God wants it all. Now, I think most of you have been nervous for long enough as it is, so let me go ahead and answer the question that is on every man's mind. Does that mean that we still have to do this today? No. But I thought you said it was an everlasting covenant. It is an everlasting covenant. But the sign of that covenant for God's people, Jew and Gentile, is now found in Colossians chapter 2. Take a look at what Paul writes. He says, And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority, in Him you were also circumcised. Up oh, there's the word again. How is that? With a circumcision made without hands, but putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. How is that? Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. The sign of the covenant. For we, in the new covenant, carried through. We still carry, you and I, the promises of Abraham, the blessings of the world come through the Messiah that you and I worship. All of that is still true. And the sign now is no longer circumcision, it's baptism. It marks us as members of the covenant. It's one of Uh, Several reasons, actually, why here at Covenant there's only one way that we do it. Now, we've got brothers and sisters and other traditions, and they practice this in different ways. We don't believe they're less Christian than us, but the only way we do it here is by immersion. You know why? Because God wants all of you underwater, all of the old you dead to sin, all of the new you raised up to Christ. That's the sign. That's the sign. And so it's still in full effect. And the aim, again, is God wants everything. He wants it all. That's the why of circumcision in this passage. That's the why. And the results are phenomenal. Shortly after this, we finally see the covenant promise with the birth of Isaac. And then we see in chapter 21 of Genesis that promise that God gave to Isaac's, son, or Isaac's father, Abraham. We, we see that same promise given to Isaac himself. Sojourn in this land... And I will be with you and bless you, for to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. that sound familiar? It should. It's the same promise that he made to his daddy. Now he's making it to the next one in line. That promise reiterated to Isaac. And then Isaac and his wife Rebecca have two sons. One named Esau, the other named Jacob. And again, we see how gracious God is in this account of the birth of those kids. The children struggled within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And then here comes the big shocker for the culture in which this was written. The older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. See, by the time we get to this story, the concept of the firstborn is already deeply entrenched in multiple societies throughout the ancient Near East. Every early culture in this region adopted the practice of endowing the firstborn son with special privileges. And already we see God reversing that order. To Abraham, he says, it's not going to be Ishmael. I know biologically, I know that chronologically he came first. That's not my choice. My choice is Isaac. And here, to Isaac's wife, Rebekah, he says, it will not be Esau. It will be Jacob who carries forth the line, who carries forth the seed. And unless we think that there's a choice being made there because one brother is better than another, we need to keep reading. Because if you'll read the story of Jacob's life, you will read... With abundant clarity, this is not a guy who deserves anything. His name actually means scoundrel. And he's true to his name. I mean, he is incredibly true to his name. This guy cheats his brother, lies to his father, brings all kinds of sin and dysfunction into the larger family. And this, again, is the guy God chooses. I'm telling you, the story of the patriarchs is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Really? 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 That one? And yet, this is exactly what happened. God chooses Jacob. But he will not use Jacob just like he will not use Isaac or Abraham until he has broken them. So, look at chapter 32 of Genesis. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. That's another way of saying your name is no longer scoundrel, huckster, trickster. Your name is now Prince of God. That's what Israel means. For you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. So here's Jacob. Also being broken by God, also being changed by God. He has this encounter and he walks away from it. All this you know, it's always interesting to me when people say, God showed up and showed off. Yeah, well, and sometimes he does, and sometimes it's powerful. And so, but it's not always this emotional stuff like he's your girlfriend or something. When God shows up, sometimes people get wounded. Sometimes people get crushed. Sometimes people are broken over their sin. It's not always hair standing up on the back of your neck. Sometimes it doesn't feel good when God shows up. Jacob walks away with a broken hip and a broken spirit, but a new name. Are you willing to endure that to get what God would love to give you? That's that's the real question. That's the real question. Are you willing to give up comfort and peace and all these other things? Because this isn't just about God, when he shows up, and I always, it's interesting to me, in, in Acts, there's this story about Ananias and Sapphira coming into the church, and they pretend to give everything, when in reality they've only given a part of it, and, and God strikes them both dead in the middle of a church service. And what's going on at that moment is the church is in revival, and people are coming to Christ, and there's all kinds of stuff. And I thought, man, that is really weird. I have never seen anything like that in my time, but that's revival. People talk about revival Like it's a massage or something. And you read the Bible's account of revival, and yeah, there was some phenomenal stuff that happened, but there's bad stuff that happened too. And I've never been in a situation in any town where as a kid I was at a revival service or I was preaching a revival service and I'm sitting at a restaurant the next day and somebody walks in and they say, how's the revival meeting going at your church? Oh man, God moved in a powerful way. He killed two people for lying last night. But this is the story of the Bible. This is the story. Jacob does not walk away from his encounter with God unchanged. He walks away wounded, but with a new name. Israel. Prince of God. You notice in the pattern here? This is what the story of the patriarchs teaches us. It's a story of God choosing unlikely and undeserving men, breaking them wounding them, and in the process, changing them for good by His grace. That's the story of the patriarchs. And you know what? That's your story, and that's mine, if we belong to Christ. God has to break us of our sin. God has to wound us from time to time by taking away lesser things so that He can give us the destiny that is ours. And with this, the stage is set. Jacob now has 12 sons. You can see their names behind me here. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Abner, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. The Messiah that is promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. This seed who will redeem the cosmos comes out of a nation of people. God rises up from the line of unlikely men. Unlikely men. What do we learn from this? Three things. Number one, we learn that real faith is tested over time. That back up a truck, pack up everything, and say, so "Woohoo!" It looks like faith. But then, when the, when hard times hit, we discover everything everything Abram's doing and believing up until this point is just a veneer. There's nothing sincere about it. You've got to test faith over time. Here's the second thing we learn: God can use anybody, anybody. He uses this frail fallen cowardly man to give rise to the nation through which will come your messiah and mine and today followers of three of the most well-known religions in the world christianity judaism and islam hold this man in high regard so let me ask you this when you see the worst of our society what's the first thing that enters your mind when you see the homeless, when you see the drug addict, when you see, I mean, see some of you may be, even be in our Celebrate Recovery programs and you're like, God could never use me. He absolutely can. He absolutely will. He likes using people like you. It makes Him look good. He loves doing stuff like that. Not before He breaks you. Not before He changes you for good. But He can use you mightily and powerfully. And we see that here. We see that here. He can use absolutely anybody. So when you see that drug addict, when you see that person on the street, when you see the worst of society, do you see the potential God sees as a follower of Christ? I was in Baltimore several years ago with one of our church planters, and we were, literally watched a drug deal go down on the street corner. And the planter I was with, I was coaching him at the time, and he said, um, he said you see that guy right there? I said, yeah. He said, called his name. He said I've known him for about 3 weeks and he said I don't know I've just been impressed every single time I see him out here dealing. I am praying for God within the next 60 months to make him an elder at my church. And I said, "Really?" I said, "What makes you I mean, what makes you say that he would be great?" And he sort of shrugged his shoulders and he said, "Well, he's over 30, he's dealing drugs and he's still alive. That means he's smart." He's got brains. He's well-known in the neighborhood. He's well-respected in the neighborhood because even though this is an illicit business, there's not a whole lot of economic engine going on in this part of the city. and He's bringing income into his people, and they love him, and they respect him. He's got street cred here. If I get him, if God gets him, God will get this community. Do you believe God can change somebody like that? If you don't, you haven't read the story of Abraham. You haven't read the story of Isaac. You haven't read the story of Jacob. You haven't read the story of the 12 sons that we'll get to next week. God can use anybody, but not until he breaks you. This is the third principle. God works in you before he works through you. We see that here in the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Great things happen. Twelve tribes are birthed from three generations of men but not before God worked in each of their lives in transformative ways. God uses people greatly, but only after He has wounded them deeply and changed them profoundly. We are this way. He changes us. And then He uses us to change the world. This 100-year-old man becomes the father of millions of people. That nation will bless the world. And even today, they continue to do that. You know, Jews have never accounted for more than 3.5% of the total American population, but you cannot match their influence on media, art, architecture, music, culture at large. And Abraham becomes the initiatory channel through which comes this greatest blessing. And that greatest blessing is something else. The greatest blessing is not Israel. The greatest blessing is the ultimate Israelite. The greatest blessing is what Israel produces. Don't be fooled into thinking that the story of the Old Testament is the story of Israel. Listen, Israel is a phenomenal supporting actress, but she is not the main character. The main character is an Israelite named Jesus who came through that line, to save the world and it all started with a redneck from Mesopotamia imagine what God could do with you but you have to give him everything would you bow with me Father your word is true and I pray that it sinks into the minds and hearts of your people today and I pray that we would give you everything And that in giving you everything, we would see your mighty works here and around the world. Father, I pray your spirit to convict of sin, to bring encouragement. And I pray for your people to be transformed. After the pattern of the patriarchs, that you would use people in this room in mighty ways. That we would look back on one day with just amazement and say, look what the Lord has done. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.